Thanks, David. You know, if the uh, Apostle Paul were to engage you or me in a conversation, I think one of the questions that he might get around to asking, especially in light of what we've been seeing in the book of Philippians, would be, um, where do you find your joy in life? You know, where do you find your joy in life? That sense of, of having a real contentment and inner peace. That sense of well-being. So that even if a number of other important things in your life were removed, the fact that you had this one thing or the fact that you have this one person would anchor you and would be enough. So where do you find your joy in life? Well, as a matter of fact, um, Paul has been answering that question for us even at, from the time we started the study in Philippians because from the first few verses, that's really what Paul has been talking about is how do you experience true joy? And so if we were honest in that moment, how might you answer that question? Where do you find contentment? You know, where do you find that sense of inner peace? Well, if I were honest at different times of my life, I'd have to say that I would respond, well, actually, right now I'm finding joy in my family. More recently, uh, as the children have all been out of the house in ways that I never dreamed would be this good, I've been enjoying my marriage. (laughs) But more than that, that's where I would find my joy. There were times when I would have had to admit, Lord, uh, Paul, I find my joy in my ministry because that's where I get my sense of purpose and identity. And so if Paul leaned in and said to you, where do you find your joy right now in your life? Um, well, how would you answer? I find my joy in fill in the blank. Maybe you're at a lower point of life right now and life's a bit challenging and so you'd say, well, to be perfectly honest, I don't know that I feel much joy right now, but if I had this, or if, I, if this was my experience, then I'd have joy. Well, if we were in that conversation with Paul and he were to listen to our answer, and I'm sure he'd be kind and he'd listen to what we were saying and what's going on in life, he would lean in and probably with a smile say, I've discovered in my life that only Jesus can bring me joy. And so let me tell you about my story. Let me tell you about my story of finding a relationship with Jesus Christ and in the, in the, not only the impact that he made in my life, but the joy that I've experienced in him ever since. Well, actually, that's where we are this morning in Philippians chapter 3, because as we go through these verses, actually what Paul is doing is he's giving us his personal testimony. He, he's actually telling us, this is what happened in my life when I went from a self-righteous, seeking my own righteousness person and became simply a believer in Jesus. He's not going to go through the events of the moment that he gave his life to Jesus Christ, but he's going to give us some insight into what happened in the heart. What happened on the inside? What, What changes did it make to Paul 
in that, that part of his life that was not just he changed where he went to church or he changed his activities or he stopped doing the Jewish law thing, but more importantly, what was the hard experience when Paul found Jesus? And so that's what we're going to be getting into this morning. And uh, we're going to dive right in. And uh, there's three different things Paul is going to do as we get uh, in our time here. And the first thing is he actually gives us a command. Uh, Paul gives us the command and he says, Experience true joy in the Lord. Experience true joy in the Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3 again. And Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, I look at that word finally, and in the English I go, this is great, Paul's almost done. <laughs> you know what, he's going to be concluding point, and then we can go home. And that's not exactly what's happening here because Paul's only halfway through the letter. Now, the, the word finally there actually um, means furthermore, or so then. So Paul's actually going to change the subject a little bit from where he's been but that subject is actually pretty familiar to the letter to this letter of Philippians because that thing that he wants to bring out is rejoice in the Lord rejoice in the Lord it's actually in the imperative and so what Paul is saying here's something you absolutely need to do you need to rejoice in the Lord Now, after all that we have seen about Paul talking about joy, why does he put this right here in the middle? Why does he bring what really is a reminder of something that he's already said, and he's going to say it again, that we are to experience true joy in our relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, it's because, as we mentioned last week, Paul's given us, as well as the Philippians, some pretty heavy-duty instructions you know, it's been pretty challenging here for a few verses. He has been going, going back to the fact of that we have to have, be living this life that is worthy of the gospel. And so how are we to do that in relation to each other? How do we live a life worthy of the gospel in the relationship as a church family? How do we do it with the people that we are around out in the community And Paul wants them to remember that in the midst of living this life, in the midst of rising up to the challenges that he's been given, in the end, in the final end, in the final analysis, this is the one thing that is truly important. It's all about our relationship with Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, the central part, the central person in my life is Christ. So even as I look at all these things that I'm told to do, even as I'm looking at this life that I'm called to live, it is not about what I'm doing, and it's not about even that obedience. It's about the fact that all of this is coming out of a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so in the midst of all that I'm doing here, in the midst of this commitment that I have made to live out a life of loving obedience to God and His Word, Paul says, don't don't forget, it's about your relationship with Jesus, so rejoice in Him, even in the midst of the challenging teaching that he's given here. And so he's going to go back into some more heavy-duty teaching later. And so this is like a hinge in the book of saying, don't forget what it's all about. It's about your relationship with Christ, 
and finding joy in Him. And so it's a good point to remind ourselves that the definition of joy that we've been looking at is that it's a settled assurance and confidence in God that leads me to praise Him at all times. That through my relationship with Jesus Christ, I have this settled assurance and confidence in God so that no matter what is going on in life, I can praise Him at all times. And that's joy. And he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble at all. (laughs) It's no trouble, he says. And Paul is referring back to what he wrote in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. Because that's what he's kind of repeating here. It's where he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, and here it is, for the faith of the gospel. We're doing all this for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, remain firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is to say, remain firmly rooted in your relationship with Jesus Christ and make sure that you do it together as a church family so that you can encourage each other, stay focused on Jesus. Even as we go through the various experiences that are a part of each one of our lives, and those experiences can be totally unique to ourselves, we all have that same challenge. We all have that same encouragement. We all need that same thing. Stay focused on Jesus as you're walking through whatever it is that life has put in your way, or brought you away, I should say, at any moment in time. Have that settled assurance and confidence in God that leads you to praise Him at all times. I hope that you've had some friends, like I've had a couple of friends in my life, that when I start to go off the rails about something, they can just put that hand on the shoulder and just sort of gently remind you about your relationship with the Lord. Put your focus back on the Lord. And Paul says, this is safe for you. This is safe for you. That phrase, safe for you, literally means it prevents you from stumbling and falling. Prevents you from stumbling and falling. You see, because if you and I are not focused on Jesus Christ, if we're not rejoicing in Him, we may find ourselves stumbling into things like sin as we lose focus. We might find ourselves stumbling into discouragement when life gets hard. We might find ourselves stumbling into fear when we feel threatened. We might find ourselves stumbling into anger as we see the full effect that sin is having on the world around us. We may find ourselves stumbling and becoming distracted by the things, the values, and just the busyness of the world around us. And Paul says, don't lose your focus on Jesus and don't lose your joy in the Lord because then you will not stumble. But instead, you will experience true joy in Jesus Christ. And so having commanded us to rejoice in the Lord, now Paul moves on and he's got a, he's got a warning for us. He's got an important warning for us. He wants to warn us, keep the gospel biblically pure. No additives and no subtractions. Keep the gospel biblically pure. 
No additives and no subtractions. He's going to be talking here just so that it makes a little bit of sense as we read the verses, and we're going to come back and, and explain them more in a moment. But he's talking about a group of people called Judaizers that are in the church and have brought additions to the gospel. And so Paul is actually warning the Philippian believers about this group who, who may try to come and infiltrate the church. But he says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now here's the thing. If our lives are fully in Jesus Christ, if our joy is fully, fully in Jesus Christ, it is absolutely essential that we keep the gospel biblically pure. That means that we understand that we don't add any requirements to being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But neither do we remove any of the biblical truth about being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ either. It stays biblically pure. That God is the one true creator God and that all of us are created in his image. And we are designed to live with him in fellowship forever. That humankind has chosen to rebel against God. That we've rebelled against his design for life and that rebellion the Bible calls sin. And that sin, that rebellion has separated us from God because he is holy and he is perfect. And so we are separated from him. And because sin must be punished, if our sin is not somehow dealt with, that separation from God will last for eternity. So God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ, the eternal God, the Son, who took on humanity and he came down to earth. He lived a perfect life and then he went to the cross he died in penalty for uh, he uh, paid the penalty for our sin and then he died. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and when he did that, he defeated sin, he defeated Satan, and he defeated death itself. So that when you and I will put saving faith in Him as our Savior, we receive forgiveness from sin. We see, receive eternal life and glory with Him. And we are adopted as a child of God where we are held securely in His love forever. And now we live for Christ and we live for His kingdom as we wait for His glorious return and the establishment of His earthly kingdom here on earth. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in its biblical purity. Now, from the earliest days of the church, guarding the biblical purity and clarity of the gospel has been necessary. Because before Paul returned from his first missionary journey, there was a threat to the purity of the gospel that rose up from within the church itself. And that threat is coming from this group that I mentioned earlier, known as Judaizers. They are Jews who've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah or as their Savior. But now they are teaching 
that Gentiles must first become Jews by maintaining the Old Testament law, by abiding by the Old Testament ceremonies, as well as all males being circumcised, because only after you became a Jew could you now come to Jesus. Because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and so therefore the only way for a Gentile to be saved was to become a Jew first, then you could come to Jesus. Now in Acts chapter 15, the church council in Jerusalem had declared that this was an unbiblical addition to the gospel, and therefore it's heresy, it's false. Because it changed the gospel so much that it was no longer the true gospel at all. But these Judaizers had kept up, and so they had already infected a number of the churches in Asia Minor. And Paul's concerned that they're going to spread to Europe. And so this passage here in chapter 3 is a warning to the Philippians about these Judaizers, these false teachers from within the church itself. And he tells them three things about these Judaizers. He says, first of all, understand, they're dangerous to your faith. That's why he says, look out for the dogs. The dogs. In the Greek, there are two words for dogs. One of them is a domesticated pet. But the second one was a wild scavenger dog. And these wild scavenger dogs would run in packs. They fed on garbage. They spread filth and fleas. And in some cases, they would, either, they would even attack people. And so Paul is saying these Judaizers are actually scavenger dogs. They're dangerous, and they're to be avoided. And so have nothing to do with them. He also says that they are evildoers. They're evildoers. These false teachers may have thought they were teaching truth, and they may have even thought they were honoring God, but the opposite is true. They're leading people away from a relationship with God because of this false teaching. They're actually evildoers. What they're doing is against God and His truth. So not only do you have nothing to do with them, but he says don't have anything to do with their doctrine either. And then he says, they're not even true believers. They are those who mutilate the flesh. It's a reference to the Judaizers' requirement that Gentile men be converted to Judaism through circumcision before they could then come to Jesus as Savior. And Paul is saying there's no value in that at all. It's just mutilating flesh. There's no spiritual value in what they're saying to do. From Paul's time to the present, there has always been false teachers within what we might call Christendom. There are those who claim to be teaching the truth and they claim to teach the gospel, but they're not. And Paul says they're dangerous to your faith. He says they're actual false teachers, and in some cases, these aren't really believers in Christ at all. There are those who will want to add to the biblically pure gospel, and one of those examples of today is those that will say you must experience God's prosperity. You need to be experiencing His prosperity in terms of wealth and in terms of health because if you're not, then maybe your faith's not in Jesus is not authentic, it's not real. 
That's false. That's adding to the gospel so that it's no longer the true gospel at all. And there are those in our, in our current culture within the church that find some of the truths related to the gospel to be a little bit inconvenient in this progressive society. And so they say, well, we'll, we'll put those truths aside so that the gospel will fit better in this progressive culture that we're living in. That's a false gospel. Paul says the gospel must stay biblically pure in all of the truth that has been revealed to us. Do not add anything to it as an added requirement, but neither do you take anything out of it. But in love and graciousness and humility, we share the pure gospel with the world who desperately needs to know Jesus. We are the ones that Paul describes in verse 3 as he says, We put our glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in our flesh. That is, no confidence in our ability to be righteous before God on our own. But we glory in Jesus. And we share that with the world around us. And having given us this command, and then having given us this warning, now Paul gives us his testimony. It's a testimony of going from prideful self-reliance and self-righteousness to faith in Jesus as he compares what he thought was profitable when he was doing the self-righteous thing. But now that he sees what he's gained in Christ, he says there's no comparison. And like any good testimony, he's going to include the before Jesus version of himself, and then he's going to include the after Jesus version of himself and what happened in between. And he starts with the prideful, self-righteous Paul in verse number 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You know, there's uh, other Bible passages that tells us a few things about Paul before he came to Christ. And we know from those passages that he was born in the city of Tarsus in Asia Minor, and he was born into a very wealthy and influential family. We know he was wealthy because Paul was sent to Jerusalem as a young man to study under one of the leading rabbis of his generation named Gamaliel. That would be like going to Harvard or Yale today in the sense that it was prestigious, but it was also extremely expensive. And so his family had to have wealth for him to be able to go do that. He also was a very influential family because his dad was a Roman citizen. And that made Paul a Roman citizen. Extremely rare for a Jew to be a Roman citizen with all of the privileges that went with being a citizen of Rome. It was gained usually either because you had done something exceptional for Rome or you purchased it with a ridiculously high fee. You could purchase citizenship, but you had to be extremely wealthy to do it. Or Paul's father had done some service for, the, for Rome and they had, they had granted him citizenship as a result. But it made you really influential. And Paul leverages it different times during his ministry. And so as he enters into adulthood, Paul's got some real advantages. And that's why as Acts open, 
Paul is actually a special assistant to one of the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the nation of Israel. He might have been the special assistant to Gamaliel himself. And that Paul was on track to becoming a member of the Sanhedrin himself someday. And that's the track he's on. Very wealthy, very influential, and on a track of success. So as we come to Philippians chapter 3, Paul is laying out his credentials as a faithful, righteous Jew. And he's saying basically, hey, if anybody could earn favor with God, it's me. If anybody could have earned favor with God on their own effort, it's me. And notice he says again in verse 4, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. What Paul is saying is, I was born a Jew and a member of one of the most prominent tribes of Israel. During the time of Paul, there were only two tribes that you could trace your ancestor back to because the northern ten tribes had been driven out of the land by Assyria. They had never come back. All the records had been destroyed. And so the only way you could do a genealogy is if you were from the tribe of Benjamin or you were from the tribe of Judah. And that, that was a status thing for the Jew. And so he's saying, I can trace my heritage. I can trace my ancestry. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And many of the Judaizers had been Gentiles at birth and then converted to Judaism. And then at some point, made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, you know what? I was born a Jew in one of the most prestigious tribes of Israel. He goes on and says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means that he may have grown up in a Gentile city outside of Palestine, and he did. But he faithfully followed everything Jewish. He dressed like a Jew. He observed all the customs of a Jew. He was, he, he, he was um, committed to the religion of the Jews. He spoke the language at his Hebrew of the Jews. There's no hint of Greek culture impacting Paul's life. He's completely Jewish, even though he's from a Gentile area. He says, I am a Pharisee. That is, uh, I am one who is devoted to following the law. Now, we have to understand that when you and I hear Pharisee from our um, 20, um, yeah, what is this? 21st century eyes as Christians, Pharisee is a bad word, right? But in the first century, Pharisees were the most respected of all the Jews because they followed the law closer than anybody else. They, they were devoted. All the best teachers were Pharisees. All the, all the known leaders were Pharisees with very few exceptions. And a Jew would say, if God is pleased with any Jew, he's pleased with a Pharisee. He says he's zealous about the Jewish faith. He persecuted Christians because in his eyes, Christians are heretics and a danger to the Jewish faith. So he led out the early persecution efforts against them. And he said, as far as the law, blameless. He had a reputation that was without blemish. There was nothing that you could say about Paul's life that would say he was a hypocrite. He was faithful to the law and he was devout in his pursuing of God. 
And so Paul was born into a devout Jewish family. As an adult, he embraced everything related to his Jewish faith and heritage. He was a Pharisee who tried to keep the law with perfection. He was zealous in his protection, protecting of the purity of the faith against perceived heretics like Christians. And he had a blameless reputation with people outside. Now, the interesting thing in this passage is Paul is actually using accounting terms. I had to smile as David was reading because he probably didn't know he was actually giving account, first century accounting terms. What Paul is doing is he's describing a ledger. A ledger with the gains and a ledger with a loss side to it and columns to it. And as he's looking at his life with his before Jesus eyes, he looks at everything we just talked about and he says, surely these things were all in the spiritual gain column. They gained me favor with God. But now all of that changes as he has an encounter with Jesus Christ. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When he came to know Jesus, everything he put in his spiritual gain column was moved to the loss column. Because now he had something much better. Now he had something much better. The day that Paul accepted Christ is described in Acts chapter 9, and it's well known to many of us that rode to Damascus on the way to arrest and imprison Christians in Damascus. He's met by the resurrected Christ in all of his glory. And in a moment, Paul recognizes his error, and he accepts Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior. And he says, at that moment, everything shifted. Took everything I had and put it in loss because of all that I have gained. First thing he's gained is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, my Savior. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Surpassing worth means something of incomparable worth to anything else. There's nothing more valuable. And the thing that is so valuable that he knows Christ Jesus, my Lord. I now know Christ Jesus, my Lord. Know here is the word that means to have a relationship and personal experience with somebody. So this isn't head knowledge. This is a personal, relational experience that Paul has with Jesus Christ. And he says, I know him as Christ. That is, I know him as Messiah. And that declares that Jesus is God. He knows him as Jesus, that is, as Savior. And he knows him as Lord, which is King. And so everything Paul had moved to the last column, and he says it's like waste. It is manure it's a dung heap compared to what i've now gained in jesus christ and so he says the surpassing worth of knowing personally the one who is god savior and king and he's my personal savior he's my personal christ he's my personal king i know him i'm related to him And he says then, 
he has also gained the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed into his spiritual account. That's in verse 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, I took all of my own righteousness that I thought was gain, I put that in the loss column because no matter what we do and how much we can put into that self-righteousness column, it never makes us right with God. It will never make us right with God. But he says, when I put saving faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness, is put into my gain column. Because now, as God the Father looks down upon me as a believer in Jesus Christ, he, does no, he no longer sees my sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ, and it's as if it is my righteousness. It's in my gain column. And Paul says, I am now accepted, and I have now been adopted, and I am now God's forever. That's what I've gained. And then he closes out this section, and this is where we're going to pick it up next week. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I now know this Jesus personally. You know, Paul wants us to remember that as we are seeking to live the lives that are worthy of the gospel, in the end, what really matters is this. We are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. (laughs) And we can find joy in him. We must preserve the biblical purity of the gospel, making sure that there's never any additives nor anything subtracted. Because the world needs to hear the pure biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to live and treasure the fact that we now have a personal relationship with the one who is God, Savior, and King. And he knows us personally, and we know him. And we just pause, as Paul says, and we rejoice in him. The question I'd like to leave with you this morning is is simply this. Do you have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Or maybe you're in the position of Paul where you think, well, I've always gone to church or I was born into a Christian family or I try to do the right thing. And Paul says, no, it's, it's about what have you done with Jesus? Have you come to that point where you have acknowledged that there is sin that has separated you from him and no amount of church attendance and no amount of knowledge will ever bridge the gap between you and the Lord? That Jesus Christ is God and that he lived a perfect life And he went to the cross and he died and he paid the penalty for your sin because there was absolutely nothing you could do to deal with that yourself. Besides, remain separated from God forever. 
Then he rose from the dead three days later because death needed to be defeated, and death has been defeated, my friend. And so is Satan, and so is sin. But then the Word of God makes it so clear. You need to call out and let God know you believe. You need to acknowledge who He is as the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead. You need to acknowledge who you are as a sinner separated from God by your sin. And you need to then call out and and trust and know that God has promised, He's promised that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Only because of Jesus. And so if you have absolute, solid uh, assurance that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, this morning is a morning to just pause and go, thank you, God. But if you're not sure, then this is a morning for you to say yes to Jesus. Because as I prepared for this morning, I said, Lord, I don't know how good I'll do with the rest of the passage, but I want to nail this part of it. I want people to absolutely understand the gospel before they leave this morning. And so if you've never made that personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I invite you to bow your head right now and do it right in this moment. And so I'm going to ask everyone to bow your head. And if you know you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, just take a moment to thank him. But if there's anything inside of you that's listened to these last five minutes and said, I'm not sure, then let the Lord know, I believe everything Len just said of who you are and what you've done. And I ask you to come into my life right now to be my Savior. Take a moment and pray in rejoicing or acceptance. And then I'll close. Father, for those who are rejoicing, Lord, I join them. And just thank you so much for all the truth we've seen of Christ this morning in Paul. But for that one this morning who is unsure, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will draw them to true saving faith in Christ. That they might know, as John says in 1 John, that they may know that they are your child. And Father, we give you this time. We give you ourselves in Jesus' name. And together, the children of God say, amen. If you prayed this morning for that assurance or for that acceptance of Christ, I would love to know that. And so would you just catch my ear this morning before you leave and just let me know that this morning I prayed to accept Christ. And then we will need to have a follow-up conversation at another time. But we'd love to know that and pray for you. But God bless. Would you stand and sing with me?